You are witnessing a front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And this week, our special guest is Mr. James Cathcart. Yo, everybody, what's up? James, tell the, <laughs> tell the people a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm you? a film programmer here in Nashville, Tennessee. I program a series called The Light and Sound Machine, which is a partnership venture of the illustrious Belcourt Theater and uh, Third Man Records, which is musician Jack White's crazy Willy Wonka chocolate factory record studio slash performance space slash uh, mysterious lodge, but not, <laughs> but not black or white. <laughs> it's kind of a blue lodge. I've been in it. It's, it's a blue lodge. Yeah, it's a, it's a blue. Some some parts of it are uh, eye searingly yellow as well. Does Does anyone call it the Jack White Lodge? No. <laughs> oh my God, no. Simon! No one calls it that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm so yeah. sorry, and we're very very happy to have you. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm 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 sorry that you have me because because <laughs> uh, I I this is this was uh maybe my this is my first real attempt at delving into season two and I re- was I've been reminded why I never bothered in the first place. Uh, but <laughs> so I'm kind of, so, I'm, so I'm kind of coming into this as an outsider. I like Lynch. I'm not even that big of a Twin Peaks fan. So I'm just going to come like a wrecking ball and just probably screw everything up. I am going to be the Diane Keaton of your uh, Twin Peaks, <laughs> Peaks podcast. Oh, <laughs> so this that is, is going to be the Diane Keaton episode. That is such a harsh cell phone, James. <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't think, I think if we all worked really hard, we might not be able to lower that, the bar quite that low. So I think, I think we're going to be, we're going to be all right. But I didn't know that, James. So you've never really dealt with kind of season two of Twin Peaks. You sort of stuck more to season one. Uh, yeah, I only watched season one once and it was ages ago. Um, oh. So I, I've been having to do some pretty, pretty furious catching up and cramming for tonight. Um, and it will show. <laughs> Wait, so did you so did you just when you were prepping for this podcast, was that sort of when you found out who killed Laura Palmer? Oh no, I mean I already knew the mythology. Like yeah, uh, I mean like like, like the, the, the the plot points for the most part I already knew. Um mm-hmm. the insane amount of characters that are introduced for no reason whatsoever in these last <laughs> few episodes that I was not prepared for. And I think that's thrown me for a loop, is sussing out what the f- is going on. Can I say that? That's a bad thing. I can't say that right. I, I well, I swear sometimes. I don't know. I actually am not sure. Are we pro swearing or anti swearing on this? Podcast? You can swear because because I haven't put the explicit tags on iTunes. Um, I I will bleep it out, but you can swear. Okay. Yeah. But the more the... the more I swear, the more work there is for you to do. There's sure. always too much work for me to do anyway. It's fine. Before we get into proceedings, I just wanted to mention uh, I had a chance to scope out. Um, the international iTunes details for the podcast. And uh, I dug up a, a very nice review that I didn't know we had from Germany. And uh, I just wanted to read a, a quick excerpt because it was very nice. This is courtesy of, and I'm going to butcher this and I'm sorry, Das Fliegende Gehim. And I'll just, I'll read a little bit. This is a very well-structured yet colloquial, friendly, chat among friends atmosphere podcast with a more sophisticated feel to it. 
very much focused on an expert analysis of every single episode, tying it to the bigger picture of filmmaking in general and of Lynch in specific. It's like meeting up with your fellow film students, uh, first airing veterans with occasional uh, guests adding a first-time viewer appeal, who are trying to delve into the bigger picture production-wise, analyzing themes, motifs, giggling about fun parts. That is true. And giving <laughs> such a vibrant, fresh touch to it without losing themselves in over-the-top theories. It's just a pleasure joining them every week. And there's a little bit more than that. So uh, that was very nice. So thank you, person from Germany, whose name, or at least whose uh, username, I totally butchered. And uh, we all we love, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, I am an antisocial freak who doesn't care, but Kate really lives for praise. And uh, <laughs> she would very much appreciate more reviews, more ratings. And uh, as mentioned previously, it does help with visibility and stuff, which will be important when the internet is going to be absolutely inundated even yeah. more than it already is with Twin Peaks content when the new episodes start. That's true. Share, share us. Tell your friends about the lodgers. Come, uh, come hang out with us and tell your friends. Yes. Um, okay. So that's enough, uh, that's enough house cleaning for one podcast. We pride ourselves on getting right to the goods, such as they are in this case. Uh, so last week, for anyone who heard the episode, we, um, <laughs> we had a little bit of a rough go of it with... Uh, I would say the most concentrated stretch of badness in the entire show. Uh, I want to thank Olivier uh, for joining us for that. It was a, a great convo about s- some really quite bad television. Um, yep. This week, we're hoping for uh, better results, courtesy of the following four episodes. Wounds and Scars, directed by James Foley, written by Barry Pullman. I don't believe there's any relation to Bill Pullman, but I'm not going to confirm or deny that. On the Wings of Love, directed by Dwayne Dunham, written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels. Variations on Relations, directed by Jonathan Sanger and written by Frost and Harley Payton. And The Path to the Black Lodge, directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal and written by Payton and Engels once again. So um, last week, Kate, we were overwhelmed with badness. <laughs> there was so much to talk about, so much to break down. And we, we kind of had a, a brief moment to... Maybe talk about the things we liked at the top of the show. I want to do the reverse this week. I want to talk about the very worst of these episodes. and I, I mean, stuff in these episodes, not necessarily isolate episodes. Yeah. And um, maybe just exercise the worst of the worst. And then maybe start to talk about um, where the light maybe starts to crack in a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think we have to work very hard to find the uh, some of the worst of the worst. You know, nicely enough for us, it turns out to be chronological. The first episode here is is far and away the weakest. Uh, this is the episode that, if people don't remember, this is right after Josie has died or been stuck in a drawer knob, and Harry has found out about it, and so the whole episode is sort of structured around Harry grieving in the bookhouse and it is right from the opening salvos of the episode it's pretty bad it's uh superimpositions of Josie's face over Harry we're getting flashbacks and Harry is drunk and I mean god I we don't I don't know how much we really want to describe all of that in detail but it is as a whole all of that stuff is is pretty rough to watch. Aesthetically, it's really not very good. It does not play to On Kane's strengths at all. I mean, I think On Kane is great as a sort of like quiet actor. And as soon as they have him yelling things at Coop about ah, oh, blah, you didn't know Josie or whatever he's yelling, it's it's brutal. It's really bad. And I don't know. For me, that episode still 
very much fits in with like the previous bunch of episodes in the sense that I don't think the writers have much of a sense of where things are going. It doesn't feel like there's much of a kind of momentum to the episode. Honestly, for me, it's one of the few episodes where even Kyle McLaughlin seems a little lost and a little off. Like, nobody just sort of knows what they're they're doing. It, it's really not. It's maybe one of my least favorite episodes, actually. <laughs> maybe? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I, that's what I was going to mention about you when you said Aunt Keen seems uh, it's not playing to his strengths. I totally agree. Um, he has almost as few off moments over the course of the show as like McLaughlin does, but in those scenes where he's supposed to be like raging drunk and yelling and uh, just having his man pain, it's like, it's not good. Um, and the fact that it's all contingent on Josie doesn't help because he's, he's so he's, you know, he's left, you know, he's left devastated by the fact that this horrible woman is dead. <laughs> like, and like even I, and I, I kind of like the scenes of of Cooper, you know, coming by and being like, "Hey, so she basically is a mass murderer, um, <laughs> so like she's basically like our Paul Pot, and maybe you should, maybe you should not feel bad that she's dead." <laughs> I mean, he he doesn't quite go about it like that, but that's the basic sentiment. Like he's hoping this will help, and I, I guess it's one way to go about it. And it just, and I don't know, I, I kind of like that weird angle that he tries out, but it's it's doesn't necessarily make for good television. Um, and yeah, it kind of stretches into the other episodes, but the the efforts to make us care about Josie and her absence really don't work. Um, no. In a in a later episode, when uh, when Ankeen is thankfully back to being quiet and sort of in in his in his zone, and he has a scene with Catherine, who is suddenly like a human again for some reason. Um, and he's like, "But she was so beautiful, so like, very beautiful. She was so very beautiful." <laughs> like, we can talk about how the show equates beauty with virtue, maybe, but. Um, that is just, it, there's no real way to salvage that line. Nope. Uh, yeah. Well, what were your thoughts about it, James? I mean, definitely the worst of the four that we watched for this podcast, but, um, it, it you know, it also introduces, introduces probably the most important, um, plot line in the entire series, which is, um, the endangered pine weasel. <laughs> and, <laughs> and scheme to stop Catherine's development, which, um, you know, I feel like at this point, the, the writing is so bad. We're introducing so many characters. Like, the show is, like, going down the drain of, like, daytime soap opera. Yeah. And, um, and you know, like I say, for someone who wasn't super familiar with what all happens in season two, it is such a whirlwind to try to keep up with. Um, but, yeah, the... <laughs> Uh, the pine weasel, though, I think is probably the, the highlight. Is it in these episodes where we get the pine weasel biting uh, Dick Tremaine's face? It is. It's, it's has... in a couple episodes yeah. down the line, yeah. I mean, it so... is nice to watch Dick Tremaine's face get maimed. Um, <laughs> other than that, though, I don't think there's really anything good or funny about that sequence. The the pine weasel riot sequence? Um, yeah. Well, which all turns into like a, a device to like push Sherilyn Finn into the arms of Billy Zane, though, right? Yes. Like, which I mean, but can anyone tell me how old Billy Zane is supposed to be? No one knows. He's like a he's a business associate of her father, but they look about the same age. How long have they have this business association? And like, is their romance even appropriate? I can't tell. So, okay, so so I just have to like. I know we're we're talking about uh, this first episode maybe right now, but I'll just I need to preview ahead to the second episode, which yes. is actually one of my favorites here. Just to point out that in it, there's a sequence where Billy Zane wears an outfit 
that maybe should go in the Hall of Fame of Twin Peaks outfits. And this is in a sequence where um, Audrey and him are sort of uh, have met up in a room somewhere and they're having like kind of a disgusting conversation where Zane is saying things like, well, you better not come in here again unless you're ready to finish what you start. Because apparently the writer's idea of writing like a, an attractive male for Audrey is like a condescending sort of semi-creepy dirtbag. Right. Oh, remember, let's let's refresh our memory that he did hit on her the first time by saying, I, lo- I loved you as a child. And, your little outfits and they're talking about like hammers and nails <laughs> yeah it's a whole big thing so the writing there is still a little creaky but the outfit that billy zane is wearing deserves some description so he's wearing those big like 80s glasses and then he's wearing a where's waldo red and white like sweater giant oversized sweater that yes. is tucked in tucked into high-waisted belted green corduroy pants that are somehow also loose <laughs> like i just he looks like a 12 year old like i call me crazy out. call me crazy but the more they stuck billy zane's character in those ridiculous outfits a the more the character worked for me generally and b <laughs> the more his scenes with audrey were less creepy somehow mm. maybe because he seemed kind of like a toddler and yeah, like now, uh, maybe he true. was trying to 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 like match the age that he first saw her. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I will say generally that like the more the Billy Zane character and the fact that I still just call him the Billy Zane character is probably not a great sign. John Winkleheimer the third or whatever his real name is. <laughs> I mean, Billy Zane in everything he is in is the Billy Zane character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's actually just his character from Titanic. <laughs> um, but. Weirdly enough, he kind of grows on me, like I know. In, the, in these episodes, in a weird way. And maybe it's just the because he's not like I don't know if it's because of the the characters that he's surrounded with or just his his like war crimes of outfits. But like there's <laughs> like it's for some reason he just kind of works on me in these episodes. And the fact that then he's just gone, uh, I mean, it's, it 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 almost made me sad, even though his last scene was completely ridiculous. I, I honestly think some of that, Simon, like, not to say, I think Billy Zane is, like, as an actor is, I guess, totally fine in it. I mean, he doesn't do anything that exciting, but he's also not sort of uh, outrageously bad either. He's just sort of fine. But I think part of the reason why he grows on you is, um, uh, like, reflected glow from Cheryl and Fenn. I think, like, she is yeah. still really good in some of this stuff, and she really manages to sell a lot of it, particularly as you get sort of further along. Um, like, for example, the sequence, I think it's also... Oh, no, it's in the first episode here when we're still in the real, like, crap fest. Uh, Billy Zane and Cheryl and Fenn go on a picnic, and at some point, uh, we cut from, like, Harry doing whatever. We cut in media res to Billy Zane serenading Audrey with, mm-hmm. like, the most ridiculous song. I mean, I almost spit my drink out. I was laughing so hard at this. But then, you know, and you're like, this is such a silly scene. And then you sort of cut to Cheryl and to Audrey, and she's sort of saying things like, well, you know, I don't feel like anyone has ever really known me. And she manages to give these scenes, like, still a real, um, I don't know, sense of uh, presence or sort of value over this sort of revelation of, like, Audrey being able to kind of fall in love. I still think she does such a good job with that that it really ends up selling some of that stuff towards the end. Yeah. Which is amazing because acting against Billy Zane, it's like acting against Jar Jar Binks or something. Like it's, it's like it's a, it's really impressive. Like when you see an actor like against a green screen and they're making it work, like it's kind of the same thing. 
Yeah, I think uh, so. This is scuttlebutt, but uh, and no one's ever like it's anonymous. But there is definitely reports that these two really did not get along on this set. Uh, they apparently were were not happy to be in each other's presence. And I guess uh, and and Sherilyn Fenn still is sort of like. No, screw this plot line. Like, she does not like the Billy Zane plot line. Uh, she doesn't like the Heather Graham plot line. Uh, so, I don't know. I always just kind of appreciate it reading Cheryl and Fenn being like, no, screw this. This sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. Go, Audrey. You're awesome. So, uh, um, what else do we want to throw on the uh, on the dung pile here? On the crap pile? Uh, well, I have a couple of things. But, uh, James, do you have anything for your for your stuff that bothered you? The character of Annie Blackburn as a whole drives me crazy. Um, her her presence to just kind of make some sense and wrap this whole series up. And the immediacy with which Cooper falls in love with her um, and compliments her coffee-making skill is... I hate that scene. It is creepy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, uh, like, again, like, what are we doing with Cooper's character, his relationship with women, the quickness with which he falls in love with women or falls for women? There's like... You know, no consistency in him at all. Uh, Love is yet, inconsistent, James. Come on. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose it is. Right? <laughs> well, let's like the, the Annie character. Like, I kind of want to come back to the Annie character because I feel like we could really we could dig into that pretty seriously because there is a lot there with her. Because I I have I am of completely two minds about her. I mean, I think what like one thing that I wanted to we could cover and then just leave it aside is. Uh, the character of Jones, which, uh, for listeners who don't remember, is the woman who is Thomas Eckhart's woman servant, as Catherine <laughs> refers to her a couple of times, inexplicably. Uh, and she's this sort of, like, statuesque, really beautiful woman who doesn't have much to do. She visits Catherine at one point, and then completely inexplicably, uh, like, at the end of the first episode we watched for this week and into the beginning of the second episode, she shows up at Harry's place uh, and sort of, like is seducing him while Harry is all drunk and falling asleep. And the opening of the second episode, which is the Dwayne Dunham directed episode, which I actually think is one of the stronger ones in the group today. There's some really wonderful things in it, except for this opening sequence where you have Jones like making out with Harry and putting on Josie's perfume and doing all of this sort of stuff really just so she can strangle him. And it's like, Harry was asleep when you arrived. You could have just <laughs> strangled him. Like you didn't, there didn't need to be this 10 minutes of like putting on the perfume and all of this very weird stuff. And um, anyway, I promised I would tell Simon uh, who played Joan. So I will do that. But she has uh, been like mostly a television actress and a really prominent voice actress, I believe for a long time. But some of her better known roles are she played Brawless Wonder Sue, Sue Ellen or whatever on Seinfeld. The woman who doesn't wear a bra on Seinfeld oh, is like yeah. stuck in everybody's mind for some reason and then she also played the captain of the ship on starship troopers oh snap yes Damn, and Simon i knew i saw her I knew, I knew that i knew her from somewhere i mean everyone is a brawless wonder on starship troopers but um <laughs> yeah um even casper even casper van dean <laughs> <laughs> especially casper van dean quick funny story that has nothing to do with twin peaks but i think you'll enjoy this when i when i watched starship troopers with my mom when i was like 12 and we got to the Denise Richards nude scene. She was like, oh, I have bigger tits than that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought you might enjoy that. Oh, man. I do. Anyway, I'm sorry for the bizarre digression. But yeah, uh, that was I, a weird I had thing. to get that out there into the public it's ear. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we can get into Annie later because uh, I also have thoughts and they are also mixed. There's a really long 
really moronic sequence that has everybody at a wine tasting. I and love that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> of course you do. So insane. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean actually, these, last, these last episodes, you get you get the wine sequence, you get the the second last episode, you get the the Miss Twin Peaks competition, you yeah. get this fundraiser for for the pine weasel. I mean, like, there's so many functions going on in Twin Peaks at this time. Um, <laughs> Party town, very, man. Very busy social calendar. They're trying to keep their minds off their constant grief, man. Can you blame them? Um, <laughs> so actually, something that. Uh, th- that I mean, that's definitely one bad thing about these episodes is like they keep giving Dick stuff to do. They just keep putting him in every Uh-oh. plot line, and it's like, come on, guys, stop trying to make Dick happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yep. the other thing that's that's that really, I mean, this kind of ties into into good things. But I believe in the first two episodes, we don't get any Bobby at all, and mm-hmm. then when he emerges again, uh, like he really like. These episodes, I, it, it, you know, it made me think back on on, the, on episodes where Bobby isn't around, and like, I really think that Bobby is kind of like this, like one of the secret sauces of the show that like really mm-hmm. helps hold the tone together in a in a in a strange way. Like, you don't think of him necessarily as being one of the pivotal characters, but I think that um, that uh, he's he's really important to getting the tone right. That scene at the end of of the third episode that really should not work, where we have. Um, of course, we we have the return of David Lynch in these episodes, which I'm sure we're gonna have to talk about. But yeah, you know, we have him and Shelley kissing, and Bobby just looking aghast at them, and it's just it's such a, an absurd sequence. But to but to my mind, like he kind of kills it in that scene. He does. I also think he kind of sells like because the, there's a sort of arc for him over these few episodes where we get you know one more episode of him being a total dick to Shelley. Like he says something to Shelley about how she has to join Miss Twin Peaks, and he's like, "Bobby's in charge. You're going to join Miss Twin Peaks," and he's still being a jerk. And then you know, an episode and a half later, he sort of has a turnaround after he sees uh, Gordon Cole kiss her, and and you have a very nice sequence between Shelley and Bobby where he's like, "Oh, I've come back to my senses and realized this," and and it totally works. Like he completely sells it, even though poor Dana Ash has been sent off and away on these pointless storylines for the like last six, six to eight weeks yeah. yeah and then all and then you know in the space of a sequence he's sort of able to bring you back to the space of like oh i remember why we used to love bobby and shelly as characters like it's yeah totally works for other terrible things i wanted to point out the inexplicably stupid uh biker character that Wyndham earl kidnaps and the, uh, and the vancouver cowpunk or whatever yeah, I. it's like everybody else, in, I, I mean, even the worst of the show, they're still sort of, these new characters, they're still more or less in the realm of this sort of like 80s, 50s thing that the show is at least pre- trying to do, even as it kind of spirals out of control a bit here. And yet this guy is like from, is like an extra from a Pauly Shore movie. Like, I don't understand... <laughs> what anybody was thinking with that character like where's the brew man like it it was just very that to me still still really sticks out as like bad remnants of season two kind of stuff Uh, i was Um, i was thinking that when they find his corpse and there's the note saying next time it'll be someone you know like it may as well have said next time it'll be a character (laughs) yeah exactly um i don't know but yeah, but so as the anybody else has other things, other lists of things they want to get on that were bad here. No, yeah, this is all perfect. Oh yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all perfect. I'm, I'm, I mean, as always, the good will be interspersed with uh, with the bad. But since we've already kind of teased it, I think we we need to talk about the return of Gordon Cole. Yes, uh, we do. 
Well, and, and let me give like a really brief uh, backstory to some of that, just to, to give the frame, because we haven't talked about it yet, but these episodes that we started with, episode 17, uh, came back to television after the show had been put on hiatus for six weeks. And I think I mentioned this at the end of the last podcast, but after Josie goes into the drawer knob, um, ABC had, had had enough and put the show on hiatus. And there's different stories as to why, but it was off the air for quite a long time. Uh, there was a like public relations company, two of the people which were, were Twin Peaks fans, they spearheaded this uh, letter writing campaign to save the show with Lynch's support and basically were able to convince ABC to put the show back on. And more than that, the show ended up going back to its original time slot. So it went back to Thursday night uh, where it had been originally, which was sort of viewed as a coup. And so I find it really funny that the first episode here is this like truly terrible, we still have some really bad stuff in the first episode. But starting with episode 18, it's like you can kind of feel that the show is getting its legs back under it. And it's interesting to think about that. It's interesting to think about David Lynch showing up again as Gordon Cole after they've basically almost lost the show. Like, the show was almost cancelled. And so there's sort of an interesting backstory of, like, Lynch maybe coming back on to be like, no, let's. I still believe in this show. Like, let's keep it going. Um, but anyway, but what, but what were you going to say, Simon? Well, I just, when he comes back, um, it really, I think these, ep- I think really most of the, of the second, third, and fourth episodes we're talking about today, they mostly work for me. And I think they mostly coast on two tones, one of just like sheer exuberant goofiness and one of like real like creepy darkness that doesn't always work. Uh, Like I think the goofiness actually works more consistently than the darkness. And a lot of that can really be chalked up to this infectious energy that certain performers are bringing to it. And and one of them is definitely Lynch. Like he, he probably has more screen time in these, in these episodes than he has in the past. And, you know, part of it is, of course, that he gets this absurd plot line with Shelley that, again, absolutely should not work. But he seems to be having such a blast playing Gordon Cole that, like, I can kind of get behind him doing pretty much anything in these episodes. It drives me crazy when David Lynch shows up in his own head. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's uh, it's second worst only did when Tarantino shows up in his own stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't even like him on Louis. It's just he's too much of a character of himself. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you talk about him appearing after almost losing the show, you know, it's like it's like he's it's like I feel like he's there to remind you. Oh, no, wait, this is a David Lynch joint. This is this is Twin Peaks. <laughs> hey, everybody, stay on board. <laughs> I'm going to knock one more out here before before the show wraps up. Please, uh, please keep watching. Um and you know, I mean, and that said, I also just, who wants to sit and watch a character yelling all of the lines? Well, I think it's kind of impressive. It's it's only taken us. I don't even know how many podcast episodes we've done. Is this podcast episode twelve or something? Yeah, it's only taken us twelve episodes to find someone who actually doesn't agree with Simon and I about everything. <laughs> This is great. I love it. We're going to maybe we'll actually have like a debate about something Uh, because I have to admit, I would totally watch Lynch just do anything on screen like all the time. I mean, I I love Gordon Cole. Gordon Cole for me. Okay. Well, so the sequence where um, it's in the second episode with Dwayne Dunham. We get past the kind of crap with Jones there at the beginning. uh, And Cole shows up at the sheriff's office and Cooper is 
reinstated back into the FBI. And like, for me, this has always sort of felt like the moment where the show turns, like where the show sort of comes back to life a little bit, because then Coop, this makes me laugh is that they're all, they're all on the way to go get breakfast at the diner and Cole reinstates Coop. And yet between leaving the sheriff's office and arriving at the diner, Coop is like back in his full FBI regalia. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow that managed to happen. Anyway, so we get to the the diner, and there's kind of a prolonged sequence at the diner, which includes all of the stuff where uh, Lynch, where Cole meets Shelley and is yelling great lines at Cope, like, she's like the babe without the arms, and that's the kind of girl that makes you want to speak a little French. And, I, you know, I mean, all of it just kills me. Like, it makes me laugh very hard. But part of the reason why I really like that sequence is I actually think that it is one of the few sequences that really works when it comes to the Annie and Coop stuff. Because I think you're totally right, James. When Annie first shows up on the screen in a previous episode and uh, she arrives and then she has that interchange with Cooper where she's pouring him coffee, I, again, I've never been able to make up my mind about Annie, but it's like Heather Graham, her acting is so kind of flat that I, I can never tell if she's doing it purposefully. Like if this is sort of a choice in this episode to have a really kind of flat affect as a way to get it a sort of otherworldly quality, or if it's just not a very good performance. And some scenes, I think it's not a very good performance. And then other scenes, I think it works really well. And I think the scene that Dunham directs them together, it kind of like, it makes my heart hurt a little bit. I love it. The sequence where Coop is sort of trying to tell her a joke and, you know, she's laughing and he says the joke about the penguin wearing the tuxedo. Like, it just makes me smile every time. And some of that might be rebound from being so relieved that the show doesn't suck anymore, that that might be part of it. But anyway, so I really love it for that sequence. I I could totally watch Gordon Cole, like, you know, macking on Shelly every day of the week. It just makes me laugh really, yeah. really hard. No, but. I agree with that. And, and I guess this is where we should try to start parsing what does and does not work about Annie. I mean... Yeah, on the downside for Annie, like the the fact that she's they they don't do anything with the fact that she's Norma's sister. Yeah, like I, I would. Yeah, where's Norma? Norma's gone in these episodes mostly. Anyway. Yeah, um, I would have loved to have had more scenes with her and Peggy Lipton interacting, maybe kind of building out her character as something other than sort of a fantasy for Coop to latch onto. And like, I think that's the, the real downside of that character to me isn't anything about Heather Graham's performance. It's the fact that she's so constructed to serve like a particular plot need or a, a character need for a character who is not her. Uh, I think that's a real drag. Um, I actually think the performance mostly works for me. I, I don't have really any feelings about Heather Graham one way or the other, but I think in the scenes where she's mostly just playing off of Coop, I think they're good together. I think that they find a nice rhythm. I think it mostly works. Um, I think that her sort of, you know, you can call it flat affect, underplaying, whatever it is. Um, I think it works reasonably well against Coop and with her apparent backstory. I think that having her come from sort of a a, a, a foiled religious background is a nice match for Coop's sort of like quasi mysticism. Like I think on a on a in a, in a Lego set kind of way, it just kind of works. Is it ne- is it like is it the most natural kind of plot slash character addition to be doing on this show no definitely not like you can feel the cogs turning at every moment but in terms of like uh, i was just gonna say like the in, in terms of like new characters we've had show up and kind of get integrated into the world she's one of the most effective in the in the, in the last batch of episodes well i mean they like she's even she's an ex-nun right like we are supposed to presume that she's like left a monastery or something yeah 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 convent yeah which is like another like just a device to like not have to write any backstory for this character at all. I mean, like she's 
this is this is part of what annoys me about her. She's just this device for Coop to fall in love with. But but I mean, again, like this, it's uh, she seems really hollow. I have no problem with the performance. I agree. I think I think Heather Graham actually is kind of quite nice, and she I think elevates the character beyond what is actually there. Um, but again, the character of Annie Blackburn just kind of like sauntering in, and, and like one of the characters even comments on it at one point, right when they're talking about her entering the Miss Twin Peaks contest, and they're like, "Like what? She's only been here for like a, a couple of days." I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, but um, I mean, look, she's got at least as much right to that to, to that crown as the widow Milford does. All right. Oh my God. <sighs> widow widow milford um yes i did i there was one moment that i kind of enjoyed i i would like to think that there's some self-reflexivity there but i'm not sure i would give these episodes quite that much credit when you get a shot of the panel of the judges for the miss twin peaks contest and it's these like lily white aged men like the oldest whitest men in twin peaks are the the judges that kind of made me laugh but um Anyway, I, yeah, it's interesting. So with Annie, like, I'm glad to hear that because I like my I'm not I don't think I'm a particularly great judge of performance always. And I've never really been able to put my finger on if it's that I don't like Heather Graham's performance or if it's other issues with it. And hearing you guys talk about the kind of constructiveness of the character, I think that maybe puts its finger as much on it as anything else. Because I, I do think I agree with you, Simon. I think it, she works pretty well as a, as a foil for Coop. Again, when I watched the show when I was very young for the first time, not knowing any of this backstory... I, I quite liked her arrival. Like, I didn't, I, 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 again, as I've said, I was never that into this, the necessary prospect of him getting together with Audrey. So I, I was always happy with, uh, with Heather Graham as a, as a partner for Coop, because I do like this idea of them sort of sharing this, like, odd spirituality, this odd otherworldliness. That being said, certainly when she starts talking about things like, she had a boyfriend and then there's an implied suicide and that is what sent her into the convent. I think the show is trying to do something around like giving her sort of a sense of privacy or something around this background, but it often doesn't read that way. It often just reads as like not very thoughtful or like filled in writing, which is yeah. a bit unfortunate. Yeah. I, I I think the other reason that the plot works for me is that it's just kind of adorable to watch uh, Kyle MacLachlan play yeah. like smitten and, you know, this is a character who is so who is so in control at all times that it's just kind of adorable to watch him like badly tell awful jokes and like l- and like peer through uh, and like peer through Venetian blinds and like think about what she's doing. It's just like it's really cute. It just is. I also I like the fact that they managed to make they managed to give him a character um, who reads very much as someone who is at the same level as him. Yeah. Like, I think I said this before, but the thing I always didn't like about the scenes with with this idea of there being a relationship with Audrey was the the fact that he he treats her very much as, like, he, he's sort of a father figure. He's sometimes sort of, like, paternalistic towards Audrey. And I'm not sure why people see that and they automatically want to translate that into, like, sexual a sexual relationship. For me, it's like, that's not... Why would you do that? Whereas Annie very much reads as, like, a... A partner, and one thing I actually find really interesting watching um, these episodes again now is how many examples we get in these last few episodes of women really being the um, like move makers in in romantic relationships, which I really enjoy because to this day that is still fairly rare, unless the women are being painted as. Um, 
you know, problematic, like unless the women are, are being, are, are too sexy or villains or something. Uh, it's actually pretty rare to see, to see female characters who are sort of the kind of beloved good characters just making the first move in relationships. And you see it with, um, I mean, I guess Annie, it's like maybe not the first move, but she's very direct with Cooper and Audrey puts the moves on Billy Zane. In that scene with the airplane, I, I can't help it. Sherilyn Fenn sells that scene with the airplane. Like, it should be kind of gross when she's like, I'm a virgin and sleep with me in your plane. It, like, it maybe shouldn't work. But Sherilyn Fenn, like, it, it, I, I, it, sell, it gets me every time. Like, with Pete crying in the background. Like, it's... <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I, I just I, I just love the idea of of Pete crying and just thinking, oh, they're gonna bang. It's so cute. Um, and uh, on the subject of uh, of of women being empowered, let's also not forget we have a scene of of Ben talking to the judges and explaining that this has to be a new kind of Miss Twin Peaks where it's not only about looks, it's really about the environment. So really, we have Ben Horn, feminist, huh? Very ahead of his time. What does he say? Uh, this gone are the bathing suited jiggle fests of the past. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Richard Bamer is so good uh, in that scene. I actually do think there's something interesting with the with the Bamer uh, character here and his kind of turn because we haven't talked about this yet. Um, his turn towards this sort of consciousness like driven mode. You know, Ben has a has a spiritual awakening or whatever we want to say, and he's now trying to be a good a good guy. And it's funny because it takes you sort of three episodes, I think, before the writers really actually make that explicit. At first, you're really not sure if the pine weasel thing is just a ploy to stop Catherine. Uh, none of that's very clear. But what I was going to say is uh, there is something sort of progressive there with Ben using the pine weasel as a way to, to possibly stop the ghost with development in the sense of like this, this looking forward to maybe 10 to 15 years later when Every corporation ever uh, is like, well, we're going to sell this T-shirt. Every piece of crap thing we sell you, go capitalism. We're going to donate a dollar to some thing that we're probably causing with our shitty corporation. Anyway, so I thought, you know, Ben, I liked that. This sort of forward-looking thing. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. Ben Horn, intersectional radical feminist. (laughs) He did not get enough credit. Carrot enthusiast. Jogging suit enthusiast. (laughs) Yeah. I guess another thing I wanted to mention is that there's just some really funny... Like there are some good and intentionally funny moments sort of peppered throughout these episodes. Um, I think my favorite line in any of these episodes is when uh, Bobby is trying to trying to coax Shelly into joining uh, joining the pageant. And he starts talking about the conspiracy of beautiful people or whatever it is. And uh, it's that's a really funny scene. That's some good stuff. The one that makes me laugh still, despite how much I don't like the rest of the episode, is in the first episode that we watched today where... You get like that prolonged sequence between, uh, I think it's Jacoby and uh, Ed and Nadine. And Ed is trying to tell Nadine that like they're getting a divorce and it's this sort of overwrought thing that goes on very long. And you're like, none of this is, you don't really care about any of it. But at the end, Wendy Roby makes me laugh every time when she has that moment where she says, I think I've gone blind in my left eye. <laughs> <laughs> So that one made me laugh. There, there are some really funny things throughout. I mean, there, there's some good stuff here. Again, Gordon Cole for me is maybe the yeah. funniest, but there's there's some good stuff. The Nadine and Mikey stuff actually is quite funny to me, also. Oh yeah, Nadine is sex superstar there. Yeah, and just when when uh, when she confides to uh, to Bobby and he just howls with whatever that's supposed to be. Like, there's no saving the Nadine stuff in terms of like being 
like emotionally potent or whatever but i think when they just lean into the silliness it, it, it can work yeah it's true what are your feelings on super nadine james more so that than her uh physical prowess i i do like how the entire town of twin peaks just agrees to let her be a teenager yeah mm-hmm. uh, between that and uh and how everyone's like also like w- more than willing to indulge in ben's civil war delusion <laughs> it's like this whole town of like theater majors or something that are just like looking for the opportunity to perform whenever possible which like sort of like why i don't like you know when um joan wakes harry up to try to kill him it's like it's like yeah. maybe she just needed to perform a little bit you know <laughs> like, like, that's fine by me everything is like all about performative uh uh gestures in in twin peaks so yeah I, you know that's totally fine with me i think i think uh the population of the town are just really good sports. Yeah, they. Yeah, but I, that's true. They, they let, let, let let's do a, a a total taxonomy here. They let her enroll in high school. They let her join all the sports teams. Uh, Mikey reluctantly at first agrees to date her. Um, they agree to like apparently grant Ed a divorce. Um, yep. Because they, they they show up at the hotel to have sex with this teenager, and everyone's kind of fine with it. Everyone's pretend <laughs> they're like they're you know they're they're in disguise, but everyone knows who they are. Yeah, and they're just going to give him a room. Yeah, his <laughs> like, his friends from fine. high school are like, oh, he's here, and they're like they 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 kind of think it's funny, but they don't like try to stop it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. It's yep. pretty great. I do like that idea of the whole town. It's just getting a kick out of this, uh, of letting this sort of unfold as a space for performance. That makes me laugh. Um, I mean, you do get many scenes of Donna always being the kind of put upon one with Nadine and being like, oh, great, Nadine. Like, how nice for you. <laughs> I do think oh, it's 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 weird slash funny that, like, the notion of Cooper and Audrey shacking up was just, like, too... That was taking it too far. But then the notion of Nadine and this poor kid, like having an intense sexual relationship over like a prolonged period of time, even though she's like clearly having a prolonged mental episode is totally Uh fine. Totally fine. Yeah. And also the fact that he's eight, like, I mean, one hopes he's 18. It's not even clear. Yeah. It's it's never even made clear, but I mean, yeah, he looks quite a bit younger than Sherilyn. This is for the sake of mental health. This is, this is for Nadine. You know, so the sacrifices one has to make. If, if, uh, if statutory rape leads to a path of mental health, then, you know, like, and so the we, sacrifices we make. We, exactly. We all just need to get on board. I mean, I, it's interesting because, like, I read somewhere um, Wendy Roby talking about playing Nadine and this character of Nadine in season two. And, you know, like, she had this whole big description for the arc that, that made sense. And, like, she's talking about, well, you know, I she she's maybe one of the saddest characters I've ever played. Like, this idea that she is so she's so broken at the end of season uh, one that she tries to kill herself. And then when she comes back, she is sort of in such this world of, like, pain and hurt that she can't deal with anything. And she creates this whole fantasy to not have to look at the world and her life. And, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, like geez, like the way she's describing it, this actually sounds like a really kind of valid thing. And I was like, it's kind of amazing that the show built this thing that you could read that way and yet doesn't ever use it that way at all on the show. Like mm-hmm. basically misses all of that emotional sort of weight with turning her into almost a clown. And and you get, um, well, we, we'll get there later, but there is a further development with the Nadine plotline that we can talk about when it happens. But um, 
Anyway, so I, you know, cheers to Wendy Roby for giving it her all as Nadine. And I do think she's back in the new ones, too. So maybe we'll get, yes, we will get new Nadine. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I wanted to also, we've talked a lot about the the humor, but I wanted to give credit to the fact that, like, some of the creepy elements are really creepy in these episodes. And that was so nice to see that some of that stuff landing, like... um, you know the the hand trembling in the in the last episode is is really nicely unsettling, and the the final shots of um of Bob emerging emerging, getting one arm into the spotlight, kind of like shivering back, like it's like it's uh you know like they filmed it in reverse or something, and then the and then the the red curtains uh, from the red room showing up in the puddle, like so like it, it's night and day, like the deployment of those images versus the last scene of the last batch of episodes we talked about. Um, it's just so so much better, and I, I, I also wanted to give a quick bit of credit to the fact that you know, a few episodes ago we talked about in the Lynch directed episodes, especially you get way more breathing room, and uh, here we that kind of creeps back in in these episodes as well. Um, again, it it stood out to me near the end of the last episode, but when we have uh the shot of Coop and Annie in the diner, and it just you know we're rolling back slowly, slowly, slowly as the as the the familiar Lynch battle of drone kind of creeps in and and it, you know it's probably like a 30 45 second shot or something it's like it's so nice to see the pace finally roll back a bit yeah i mean i i again because i haven't necessarily watched these sort of paying such strict, strict attention to the direction before um that episode really stands out for me as sort of some of the stronger direction that isn't lynch direction like i think we talked about maybe tim hunter as being close uh, in a, in previous episodes to being able to handle some of this sort of um red room imagery uh like maybe the closest i would maybe put gyllenhaal up there as well in this sequence i think he does some really strong stuff here and like people who haven't put that together like he this is jake gyllenhaal's father uh another dynasty is another dynasty one so we gotta toss that out there too but i think there are a ton of things worth mentioning in that uh episode that that really speak to gyllenhaal's sort of like work um the one that starts earlier on is the moment where you get Briggs showing uh, Harry and Coop. He's filling them in on uh, Wyndham Earl's sort of backstory with the Project Blue Book. And he shows them archival footage of Wyndham Earl kind of talking about the Black Lodge. I thought that stuff was really effective. This sort of like black and white kind of like odd close up of Wyndham Earl kind of ranting about the Black Lodge is quite effective from early on. And that sequence with Annie and Coop at the diner, I kind of wanted to point it out because I think like maybe for people who are listening to us talk about this, but aren't sort of film studies people or something that that gives such a clear example of of a director doing something uh, right, like bringing kind of added value without working against a screenplay, but sort of finding something in it that maybe isn't there on the page. Because if you read that dialogue sequence on the page, it's Coop and Annie kind of having this like really just sort of lovely exchange where, you know, like they're, they're tossing back and forth references to things like Heisenberg and St. Augustine. And, and it's sort of this very nice romantic moment between them. And yet Gyllenhaal finds this amazing sort of bridge between that and the next sequence, which is a whole set of, um, I don't know, like visual uh, reminders of something that Lynch has done in previous episodes, which is these these slow tracking shots up hallways, like with the drone. And he does it first at the hos- uh, at the high school, and there's no one to be found. First at the high school, then at the Great Northern, uh, then at the sheriff's station, and all of this leads into the ending. But like, 
before, you know, you could have just cut, like, I think in some of the worst episodes, we would have just had somebody shooting, like, a romantic scene between Audrey and Coop, and then sort of cutting to, like, a bad transition, and then cutting to the stuff at the great, the Sycamore Grove tree. And instead, Gyllenhaal finds this really beautiful sort of, like, movement across all three, where the drone is building and the slow camera movement. I just love it. I thought it was really great. There's a few more things we we have not uh, talked about yet. I think maybe one of the the main... Well, there's two main plot lines we haven't discussed yet. I guess we could get people to weigh in and see who likes which one or doesn't like which one. The first one is Catherine Martell uh, fighting with the box that Thomas Eckert has left her. Uh, that's one. And then the other one is um, Donna's sort of creeping discovery that maybe there is something wrong with her uh, family situation or whatever. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of neutral on both of those plot lines. I, I don't know. What do, what do other people think about them? You know, as a, as a fan of the Hellraiser movies, I'm always a, into a good puzzle box. <laughs> puzzle box situations, I am pro. Um, also, uh, uh, the Owl Cave, the Owl Cave sequence, I think, is killer. Oh, too. yeah. Reminds me very much of uh, Michael Mann's The Keep a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, like, it, again, mystery and intrigue, and I love the way that... Um, Oh, is it maybe it happens in an episode that we're not covering in this, but how they finally open up the puzzle box is like the biggest just like <laughs> kick in the balls. Like it has <laughs> nothing to do with a puzzle or figuring out how it works, just shooting it open. Why not? Discovering oh, yeah, that yeah. dropping it opens the box. Uh, <laughs> well, there is the like lunar thing, but like I what I like about those scenes is like Catherine is very like impatiently kind of like trying to like work it out and then in their respective scenes um you know jack nance and and uh and thomas eckert are like they're so like giddy about getting it open they're like dropping it or like trying to drop it in the same way again or like when 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 eckert like very uh sorry when um when uh, andrew packard like very out of character like gets the right combination he's like (laughs) it's like they're like (laughs) dudes just love their puzzles man well, and also, how was anybody else completely? I've always been completely mystified by how it is that Andrew Packard is like, quote, you know, trying out different people's birthdays by like pr- pressing on these like moon symbols. I'm like, how did how does pressing multiple moon symbols translate to somebody's birthday? Like, I could not for the life of me. I've never been able to figure that out. Um, but I, I like the box sequence. I mean, I think it's fun. I also think there's a, a sort of fun foreshadowing to one of the more famous boxes in Lynch's uh, filmmaking Uber, which is the box in Mulholland Drive that turns up later. Like there's, there's a very fun way in which the box sort of stands in for the kind of um, both silliness, but total overwhelming fascination of like, just the mystery at the center of a narrative, right? Like just this sort of object that everybody's like, I just need to know what's inside of it. <laughs> I, like there's, you know, there's, there's a good thing. You know, who is definitely paying close attention to these episodes was JJ Abrams. Because, like, first of all, the cave thing totally predicts, like, the last couple seasons of Lost. And, I mean, there's a reason that they call, like, his style of, of, you know, TV world building, like, mystery box storytelling. And uh, I think there's a a line to be drawn with with the mystery box here and the cave and the dumb cave things that when you twist them a certain way, things happen. But uh, I, I I confess I'm not a huge fan of the of the cave set slash the mechanics of the cave. Um, it 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 struck me as a little bit Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> James like, agreed. <laughs> right, right, right. We'll, well, we'll, get, well, again, I was thinking more of the beginning of the keep than... Uh, yeah. Because again, like, oh, hey, in this cave, there's some, like, you know, it's just a cave. But, oh, well, it also is, you know, the door to another world, or at least gives <laughs> you the clue to the door to another world. And... I For me, there's some, there's some good stuff about that sequence, and there's some less good stuff about it. Like, I... A, it makes me laugh that, um, you know, Coop is drawing, like, these diagrams in the diner at the beginning, and, and Annie, and people are just like, oh, yeah, it's the drawing in Owl Cave. And she's like, oh, haven't you been to Owl Cave? And you kind of think, like, oh, it's this place that everybody in Twin Peaks goes. Cut to the second half of the episode where there's, like, three scenes of everybody getting the most complicated, like, spelunking gear that you've ever seen oh, in order to get down into this cave. Coop looks awesome yeah. in this spelunking gear, I have to say. He's really rocking he it. it makes Which, by the way, they're not spelunk. I mean, like they're they walk right into the cave. They don't need any. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like of like the gear. shot of uh, <laughs> like the shot of like, Andy. You can see the light. <laughs> the shot of Andy like clinging for dear life onto a rock, and then he lets go, and like half a foot later, he's on the ground. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe they didn't need all of that gear exactly, um, but they get down into this this space, and like there are things about it that I like. I mean, again, I because I sort of have some of that brain. Like I I kind of like the the nerdier sort of aspects of things that end up getting built here, right? Like the codes and the symbols and the map that they discover and how it relates to the Black Lodge. Like I like all of that stuff. I personally, for me, I I totally would take those kinds of storylines over I don't know any of the storylines we've had for the last bunch of episodes so it's like I'm always happy that Twin Peaks has sort of gotten back to this sense of a kind of mystery that has a sort of otherworldly quality to it so I like that the thing that drives me a little nuts about that sequence is um you know Andy hits the rock and the the diagonal square falls out and they find the little pole with the owl symbol on the end of it as you do as you do of course and it is it is so obvious that that pole does something. Like, it's a pole sticking out of a cave wall. <laughs> and they wall. just leave it. And they just leave. They're like, the four, the four of them, who are all, by the way, policemen, are all like, um, we're good. Like, we don't need to even try touching it or doing anything with it. And they walk off. And then uh, Wyndham Earl comes 20 minutes later and is like, oh, let me just turn this pole. <laughs> And then later on, when they return to the cave, like, oh, someone's been here. Huh. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I bet this pole does something. Uh, break for lunch. Exactly. I mean, literally, all the writers had to do there was just insert some kind of false emergency to get them out of the cave quickly or something, right? Like, you just need two lines at the end of that sentence to be like, at the end of that scene to be like, well, well, we have to get out of here right now, but we'll close up the cave and just make sure that nobody can touch it till we get back, right? Like, that's not rocket science, and but they don't do that. And so it sort of makes that whole cave right. sequence a little weak, but um, anyway. All I can say is that when when everyone knew where the cave was and, like, what it was, all I could think about was, like, oh, that's totally where they had the preteen orgy from It. Oh, Jesus, Simon. <laughs> you know it. You know it's true. <laughs> Anyway, and with that, yep. we should probably be thinking about wrapping up shortly, but I couldn't oh, yeah. I couldn't do that without discussing, I guess, like a major element of these episodes that we haven't really discussed, which is the fact that we get a whole lot more Wyndham Earl in these episodes. And um, it's true. I have to say that that sequence where we get that sort of old you know, home movie of him in, in a lab or whatever, like, was it just me or was the Wyndham Earl in that in that old footage like a way more interesting Wyndham Earl than the one we get yes. in actual Twin yeah. Peaks 
Um, so I found out a little bit, because uh, I, I think last week, Simon, you were talking about, yeah, just this sort of the, the departure between Windermere as he actually exists versus maybe what one would imagine that sort of Lynch had and maybe Frost had originally envisioned for this character or whatever. And um, he was apparently cast because he knew uh, Robert Engel. So he sort of came in through these people who took over after Lynch and Frost kind of went in different directions, uh, was brought onto the show. And, you know, he, he described, like, Kenneth Walsh describes this, he's like, we quickly dis, dis, like uh, decided that I was a master of disguise. And I'm like, well, that is maybe one of the worst decisions. Like, who, <laughs> this idea of this master of disguise, it's terrible. And yeah, and then I, there's a quote somewhere where I think somebody said something, uh, one of the producer people describes, uh, like, the director, a director talking to Lynch, and the director saying, like, well... Uh, you know, like we were talking about what to do with with um, Wyndham Merle, and and Lynch was like, "Well, I really." Apparently, Lynch said, I really don't like maybe what has been done with the Wyndham Earl character in episodes like the Diane Keaton episode. Maybe just have him wear black all the time. Like, maybe only let Wyndham Earl wear black. <laughs> I, like, I thought that was quite funny, because then in one of these later episodes, you do get Wyndham Earl wearing only black all of a sudden. Like, Wyndham Earl has never only worn black, so now all of a sudden... So I thought that was interesting, that there maybe is like... Um, a bit more attention to the idea that they need to turn Wyndham Earl into a slightly more coherent or like intimidating character or something. Learning that there was like some disagreement about how that character should be brought about is like extremely vindicating to me because it's, I mean, it was obvious to me that like was something was not adding up there. Yeah. It's not great. I do enjoy Leo. Leo's like attempted, um, whatever uh escape emancipation from uh Wyndham Earl where he finally gets the like garage door opener thing or whatever is <laughs> brandishing it at Wyndham Earl and then is so disappointed when it turns out it's just shocks his own neck that scene does make me laugh <laughs> anyway well, I think we haven't really discussed um Wyndham Earl abducting Major Briggs and treating him like uh like the second act of an Adam West Batman episode oh yes oh, god <laughs> Right before the commercial break and Batman escapes. <laughs> with the uh, with the truth serum and the shaky camera. And the dark that thing. actually is one of yeah, the 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 that's one of the moments in the Gyllenhaal sequence that I was not that happy with is where you get that odd sequence where Leo is sitting on the ground like squealing and Briggs is like breathing heavily and uh Windermerl is ranting and Gyllenhaal is like shaking the camera. That that is one of the weaker parts of that episode. I mean, but. honestly, if I was directing that episode, I'd just be like, I don't know, man, shake the camera. <laughs> just try something i don't know (laughs) oh also we haven't there there was some there's actually some interesting backstory stuff about some of the directors uh this week the guy jonathan sanger the one who directed the the third episode one that we haven't really talked about particularly because honestly there isn't there isn't that much in it that sort of sets it apart it's mostly the one that that deals with the biker and the chess piece um but the guy jonathan sanger who directed it he was a producer on elephant man he originally bought the rights to Elephant Man, the book, and oh, then yeah. was the producer on the film that Lynch directed. Uh, and then also, like, alongside that, has sort of had this Renaissance Man career as um, a really, like, prolific director of uh, documentary. And, like, uh, uh, you know, like, um, not institutional film, but, um, like, maybe educational film. Like, he's traveled all over the world. He's this, like, award-winning guy. So I, I actually don't know how he sort of ended up directing this episode of Twin Peaks, but he's had a really kind of storied career, which I thought was fascinating. Compare that to James Foley, who directed the uh, Harry Goes Crazy in the Bookhouse episode. Uh, James Foley just directed the Fifty Shades Darker movie that just came out. Oh, wow. It was that James Foley. 
Oh, snap. Yeah, yes. you're right. Wow. Oh, he also directed Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, did he? <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, some crazy directors uh, this week. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think next episode we have Tim Hunter back, which I am excited about as well. And then, of course, uh, so, yeah, basically next week we're going to be doing the last, the last two episodes of the original run. Uh, then we're going to be spending uh, probably way too long talking about Fire Walk with me. Uh, James, have you seen Fire Walk with me before? I prefer it to uh, season one of Twin Peaks Infinite. Oh, snap. Yeah. Oh, luckily everyone agrees about Fire Walk with me, so it should be a breeze. The uh, and yeah, and then after that we're we're on to the new episodes. So dang, it's uh, time is is it feels like just yesterday we started this podcast, Kate. We were we were but young Does pups. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> does it? <laughs> uh, oh, it, it sort of does. On one hand, it does. On the other hand, it feels like I have been. We have been very much uh, inside a Twin Peaks like bubble for a long time, but it's good. I love it. It's a good bubble to be in. <laughs> All right, Jonathan, uh, do you want to be found online? Do you can you be found uh, online? James? James. Oh, crap. James. <laughs> Sorry, we were just talking about Jonathan Singer. That's how that happened. Oh, yeah. whoop, whoop, whoop. So, uh, James. Oh, I don't J- care. James, no one's going to want to find me online after this. <laughs> uh, but thank you guys for having me while I um, listen patiently while you guys say really smart stuff. <laughs> Oh, no. No one's smart here. <laughs> I, w- I warned you I was going to Keaton this appearance. <laughs> uh, James, are you on the Twitters? Uh, yes, you can find me uh, at Promise of Flesh, uh, where you can catch me tweeting once every couple of months or so. Fantastic. Uh, and, um, yeah, no, I, I would say if you're ever in Nashville, check out the beautiful Belcourt Theater. And uh, if you happen to be on a third Thursday of a given month, check out Third Man Records and the Light and Sound Machine and see what film we are playing. And do you know what, what, what you're screening next? Yes, May 18th, we bring Wakaliwood back to Nashville with their new film, Bad Black, directed by Isaac Nabuano with producer and star Alan Hoffmanis in attendance. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Wakaliwood, the... Uh, crazy gang of ugandan filmmakers that are making features for like <laughs> the reported budget on this new one bad black is 65 dollars. nice <laughs> but, but these are insane american 80s action inspired films being made like in a backyard and they're a lot of fun and that's what we are screening you got I, people i would recommend just following uh light and sound and machine on facebook or james on facebook or anything just because getting to see the films that are being programmed uh, once a month is a treat because james finds really awesome stuff and brings in really rare prints and uh, in fact simon there was a, a thing in there for you because uh simon i don't know if you caught this podcast james but uh when we talked about Lonely Souls, Simon gave a really beautiful quote by John Berger, and I know that James just showed James just showed ways of seeing the John Berger films. So nice, yeah. So, so, and, and can I toot my own horn on Rare Prints? We also just screened the one and only celluloid film print in existence of Frank Perry's Last Summer in between appearances in L.A. and New York, a film that is very near and dear to my heart, and a screening I've wanted to do for like five years. So bringing that print to Nashville was a major, major thing. So was just it, to give you an idea of like what kind of stuff we do at Light and Sound Machine, it's varied. Was it a success? Were there lots oh, of people yeah, at the Frank Perry? Yes, Perry's yes, home? yes. I, I B-rated the entire town and just showing up. So we had basically a sell-up <laughs> on that one. That's thing. how you got to awesome. do it, man. Uh, <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, James. We super appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. And we'll be back next week with the final two episodes of season two. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, as I've already, uh, well, as long as the theme is beration, I will berate y'all. 
um, to, uh, of course, rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher and other places and uh, help get the word out because it is going to be a very, very crowded field very, very soon. And uh, we would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 